episode 213. Today's episode is all about how cravings, addiction, and anxiety are all habit loops. Saying it out loud helps us become more aware of it and not kind of push that to the side or deny or suppress or any of it. It's like, oh yeah, this is really what's going to happen. And that helps us bring that reward value of how unrewarding it is right into our direct experience right now. It's like, oh, this is what's going to happen because this is what has happened in the past. We base our future behavior based on what we've done in the past. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hello, love. If you haven't subscribed yet, hit that cute little button. Subscribing, sharing, and five-star reviews are really a great way to give back if you find this show helpful. They help the show climb the charts, which helps me get even more amazing guests for you. Today, I'd like to share a review from Natalia J09, who says, it's as good as it gets. I've been listening to this podcast for months now, and I just can't get enough. Melissa's authenticity, candidness, and insights are extremely helpful in breaking down how to apply enlightened, mindful practices into everyday life. I appreciate how this content is helping me heal, reflect, and grow. Thank you so much for consistently creating excellent content. Well, thank you, Natalia, for the lovely review. It really means a lot. And now let's get to the show. The phrase holiday spirits has taken on its own evolution for me. When I was little, it was just the whole holiday mood. Cinnamon, peppermint, cozy things. Then holiday spirits became the thing that brought the mood. The muddled libations that helped me feel alive. And then the holiday spirits took over. They were the demons that came out in full force around this time of year. Maybe it's the lack of sunshine or the fact that we're stuck indoors with less to do. Or maybe it's because there are back-to-back holidays, so there's always a reason to celebrate. Or that sweaters are hiding the empty calories of alcohol. Or because everyone else seems to tap into a mood that you just can't find naturally. Whatever it is, around this time of year, I know I need to check my habits. So I started preparing earlier this year. I read a handful of the top books on addiction in August so that I'd remind myself that I am not immune to my old ways. What I didn't expect was that refreshing myself on what could happen would shed light on some of the shadows that were currently happening, like overusing my smartphone or the regular wine I was still consuming, or even some of my moods, to be honest. I always find knowledge reminders helpful. You know, when you go over things that you already know because it reminds you of why you found it important in the first place, it's kind of like an extra kick of motivation. And usually, I find some extra facets of information that I didn't know before, especially when I seek out different perspectives. Two of the best books that I read were Dopamine Nation and The Craving Mind. Well, a few weeks ago, in episode 211, I interviewed Anna Lemke, author of Dopamine Nation. Well, if you haven't listened, go back and take a listen. My biggest takeaway from that was that of the dopamine deficit. So we all know that the reward centers of our brain release dopamine with certain stimuli, right? Anything from chocolate to Instagram likes to heroin. But what many people don't know is that for every indulgence in dopamine our brains go into a deficit 
equal to the reward. So give in to the chocolate and you might have a little moment of discomfort that you have to work through when you immediately want more chocolate. Or if you decide to do some molly at a party, which turns into a bender and you spend the whole night riding a high, you're probably going to feel pretty low for the next couple days. So for every pleasurable indulgence, there's an equal amount of suffering. Kind of sucks, right? Well, again, if you want to refresh on all of this, go back to episode 211. Well, the other book that I just couldn't get enough of was The Craving Mind. And my big takeaway from this one is another big thing that's happening in the brain when you're indulging in something. And this involves what's called the default mode network. In addicted brains, and again, this can be any addiction, like food or smartphones or even a lover, not just a substance. In addicted brains, the default mode network is disrupted. The activity in one part of it the part responsible for personal value and emotional regulation, decreases. While the other part, the part responsible for your internal world, increases. So basically, your self-worth gets screwed while your thoughts and self-importance turns up. So this actually explains, while at my worst, I thought I was the center of the world while also thinking that I was worthless and being totally fine with self-destructive patterns. In other words, our addictions begin with an addiction to self, to our own egos, to the stories that we tell ourselves and we tell other people. It's funny, when I read this, I was suddenly reminded of something that, now that I think about it, is kind of embarrassing. So I've always been a pretty good writer, which is why I went to school for journalism, I suppose. And sometimes when I write, it just flows out. And this usually happens in a long-form Instagram post. Well, there have been times when I write something and I post it and I'll check it a bit later and the likes are stacking up. And for some reason, I always get an urge to go reread the post that I wrote myself. And while I'm doing it, I can actually feel that sweet, sweet ego stroke. Like the dopamine is just doing that slow drip, giving me this natural or maybe completely unnatural high. There have been posts that I've read a dozen times because for some reason, I feel the need to reread it yet again. I noticed this months before I read The Craving Mind, but I didn't understand why it was happening until I read the book. So social media is basically the linchpin for addiction in the brain because it so perfectly combines that dopamine cycle while engaging your ego as you craft that perfect little image of yourself, whether it be the photo you've facetuned that now has 300 likes or the response to your expertly written caption. Our egos and addiction are connected in a way, which is very interesting because our personalities themselves are really just a series of habits. In the same way we become addicted to a substance, we become addicted to a behavior and even a state of mind. And the more we give in to that behavior or that mental state, the more we reinforce it, which means even anxiety and depression or your response to your partner can actually act like a habit. So what I'm trying to say is that we're all completely screwed. I'm just kidding. Thankfully, mindfulness is no longer a buzzword, and we can actually tap into the very processes that encourage addictive behaviors in order to step out of them. And that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Dr. Judd Brewer. We're going to talk about how to move beyond our cravings, reduce stress, and ultimately live a fuller life. 
Three key things we will learn are what happens in our brains when we get hooked on something, how anxiety and craving are related, and a step-by-step plan clinically proven to break the cycle, whether it be a craving or a loop of anxiety. But before we basically fix our whole lives, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you get something to disrupt your own cycle and set a positive tone for the day. Plus, when you sign up, you get two free gifts, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you grow. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. And now let's welcome Dr. Judd Brewer to the show. Thanks for having me. What is your story and what inspired you to research the role of our minds in craving, addiction, and now you're focusing on anxiety as well? Yes. Well, it started with my own anxiety in college and my own, which I didn't know were my addictive tendencies and just just all the suffering that it was causing. I started I started meditating at the beginning of medical school and through that started to realize how little I knew about how my mind worked. And and also as I went through that process of beginning to learn that, started seeing how useful it'd be for all of us to know how our minds worked and basically shifted, you know, I was doing an MD PhD program where I was studying molecular biology, like why we get sick when we get stressed. And I shifted that entire career to studying mindfulness and awareness and habit change and understanding what's happening in our brain, but also as a psychiatrist wanting to bring this into the clinic. So also developing and testing digital therapeutics to see how well we could take the theories that I was learning and testing in the lab and bring those into the clinic. So you focused on craving and addiction in your last book, which was how I found you, actually. I found that book incredible. I sent it to one of my best friends. She messaged me back and was saying, oh my gosh, this is so helpful. Both of us do have addictive tendencies with a lot of things. And I wonder if it's my heavier addictions in my past that now contribute to the fact that I could get addicted to gummy bears (laughs) if I was left alone with them too often. But I'm curious, after that research, how did you figure out that anxiety and craving are related or how are they really related? This is probably the most important insight I had had in my career so far. So in medical school residency, I didn't really learn about any behavioral pieces to anxiety. It was mostly, here are the medications, here are the side effects, prescribe away. So so I was prescribing away. And it turns out there's this metric called number needed to treat. It gives us a sense for how well a treatment works. And for anxiety medications, that is 5.2, which means I have to treat five patients, more than five patients, before one of them shows a significant benefit. So I was basically playing the anxiety or the medication lottery and not knowing which patient was going to benefit. And then also becoming anxious myself in terms of how to help my patient, which one's weren't going to benefit from medication and how was I going to help them? So at that time, I was doing some research. We had developed this app called Eat Right Now and we were studying it as a way to help people with stress and emotional eating. 
And people in that program were saying, hey, I'm noticing that anxiety is driving me to stress eat. Can you create a program for anxiety? And I was thinking, well, I, I prescribe medications, but it put a bug in my ear to go back and look at the literature to see if there was anything I was missing. And lo and behold, back in the 1980s, so this is back when Prozac was developed and all this hype around medications, but quietly these researchers like Thomas Borkovec and others were showing that anxiety can be driven like any other habit. And when I read that, it blew my mind for two reasons. One, it was like, oh, that's helpful to know. I wish I'd learned that. And two, <laughs> I was like, I know something about habits. Maybe we could bring these two together. And that's when we started developing and testing this Unwinding Anxiety app to see how well it worked. And long story short, we got gangbuster results. We did a study with anxious physicians. We got a 57% reduction in anxiety. We did a randomized control trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder. We got a 67% reduction in anxiety. And here we could calculate that number needed to treat. Ready for this? Yes. 1.6. So <laughs> compared to five, this was just worked really, really well. Wow, that's incredible. I am often saying that I believe really our whole personalities are a series of habits. And yeah. I figured this out because I have just been so passionate about learning how to take control is the wrong word because <laughs> I think in my personal growth, I've realized that the less I expect to have control over anything, the happier I will be. However, I have just dealt with so many issues in my past, both from external circumstantial things to the things that then drove me to change parts of my personality or to engage in destructive tendencies or to allow myself to be depressed for longer than it was serving me, if that even makes sense, <laughs> that would I could unravel that more. But I've started to understand that there's been a lot of changes that I can make that 15 years ago I would have thought was impossible or the messages that I had been receiving were impossible. And so when you were really digging through like who would not be benefit from medication versus who would, what did you find there? And even the people that might have felt good on medication, in the long run, are they really benefiting if they're then reliant on it in order to be able to get up for their day or whatever their handicap may be? Yeah. Yeah, great question. So I think of this as there are some people where they have some genetic polymorphism where their genes are slightly different than others, where they just need a little bit of a brain vitamin, if you want to put it in those simple terms, where a little bit of extra blocking serotonin reuptake is helpful for them. And for a small percentage of people, it is that's really helpful. So here I think of it as a, that can be helpful for some people. And for all of us, learning how our minds work can be really, really helpful. And so I think of the, let's sprinkle the training on everything, on everybody, help the, everybody understand how their mind works. And then for some people, adding medication, that can be helpful as well. Does that make sense? It does. So what is happening in our brains when we get hooked on something, whether that something is an addictive substance or a state of mind like anxiety? Do you love story-driven podcasts? I do, and there's a brand new one that I think you're going to love. It's called You Probably Think the Story's About You. 
the story just grabs you from the start. It all starts with Brittany, who thinks she's found her soulmate, only to find out things aren't as they seem. So she goes on a mission to find out the truth. And as she digs deeper, she realizes the guy's a master of deception. But here's the thing. As Brittany unravels his lies, she ends up on this journey of self-discovery. She starts to see how her own complicated past with addiction, sisterhood, and deep family bonds all have shaped her. And that's when it hits you. This story isn't really about him at all. It's about Brittany finding herself and learning who she really is. Trust me, you'll be hooked from episode one, wondering where Brittany's path will lead her next. It's a story that'll make you look at your own life and relationships in a whole new way. Seriously, grab your headphones and start from episode one of You Probably Think This Story's About You. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll come out feeling heard and stronger. Listen and follow You Probably Think This Story's About You wherever you listen to podcasts. You know I'm all about aligning in every aspect of life, right? Well, that philosophy extends to hiring, too. When it comes to finding the perfect fit for your business, sometimes the best approach is to stop the endless searching and start focusing on alignment. And that's where Indeed comes in. Indeed is like the matchmaker of the hiring world. With millions of job seekers visiting their platform every month, their powerful matching engine is designed to connect you with candidates who truly align with your needs and values. But here's the thing. Indeed isn't just about finding any old match. They're committed to delivering quality. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed provides the highest caliber of candidates compared to other job sites. And that's the kind of alignment I'm talking about. As a busy mom juggling episodes, clients, retreat planning, family life, I just don't have time to waste on a drawn out hiring process. And that's why I love Indeed, because it streamlines everything from scheduling interviews to screening applicants and messaging potential hires all in one central hub. And the more you use Indeed, the smarter it gets. It learns from your preferences. With over 3.5 million businesses worldwide trusting Indeed to align them with top-notch talent, it's pretty clear that this platform is the real deal. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support my show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What is happening in our brains when we get hooked on something, whether that something is an addictive substance or a state of mind like anxiety? <laughs> yes. So this process, it's really a survival mechanism that was set up to help us learn to find food and remember where it is and learn to find danger and avoid it. And so think of our ancient ancestors on the savanna where they didn't have a refrigerator, so they had to go remember where food is every day. And if they're out there foraging and they find a food source, right? So their brain, all of our brains are limited in capacity in terms of how much memory we can lay down and remember things. So it's really important for us to have a mechanism that can help us say, okay, this is the time to remember this path as compared to some other path, which didn't get you to the food. So if we find the food, right, there's three key elements. One's a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So that 
trigger is that we, we've been foraging, we find the food, there's the trigger, the behaviors, we eat it, and we see that there's calories. And then the result from a neuroscience standpoint is that this our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it, right? So that's what lays down this context-dependent memory. And the same is true, and then that's called positive reinforcement, right? So if there's something rewarding, then our brain remembers that. The same is also true for avoiding danger, right? If something if we're foraging, we see the saber-toothed tiger, there's the trigger, the behavior is to run away, and then the reward is that we survive. <laughs> but there we also learn, okay, avoid that path because there's danger there. And so we lay down that memory as well. And that's called negative reinforcement. So that's the process that we all use where this dopamine system is firing as a way to help us learn things. I think Often people hear of dopamine as this pleasure molecule. It's not really a pleasure molecule. I think that's a misnomer. It's more about this molecule that fires, gets our brain to learn something. It says, hey, pay attention. This was important. So in your first book, The Craving Mind, you talked a lot about how reward learning leads to subjective bias. How does mm -hmm. this play a role in things like cravings and addictions? So the subjective bias, you think of it as our brains also need to be efficient. So we can't spend every day relearning our preferences for things. It's an efficiency mechanism. I think of it that way is where if we've gone about in our lives and we've learned, okay, I like this food over this food, or I like tying my shoes over having unto, untied shoes because I don't trip as much. We start to develop what this thing called subjective bias, where we start to see the world through those lenses. If a behavior in the past has been rewarding, we're going to learn, oh, do that again. And we start to see the world through that lens. I'll give a concrete example. So if I learn, if I eat a bunch of different types of chocolate and somebody says, hey, tell me what's your favorite. For me, it's it's like dark chocolate, maybe a little bit of cayenne and some sea salt. Oh my God, me too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so my brain has learned to see the world through dark chocolate glasses. And so if I'm given a choice between somebody says, hey, you want some milk chocolate or dark chocolate, my brain doesn't have to go back and learn that again. It says, dark chocolate, please. Uh, can I have seconds? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so that's that subjective bias where I'm seeing the world through, I like dark chocolate glasses. And the same can be true with any type of learned behavior, whether it's preferring things over others or also avoiding things where it's like, oh, I don't like going for a run in the rain because I prefer to not run in the rain, just as a random example. I've been thinking about that a lot lately because a couple of years back, I read Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And he was talking about how we're always making these preferences and it ultimately leads to our own suffering. So for example, you might go have Chinese food somewhere and you're constantly comparing it to the all the other Chinese food places you've had. And so all of a sudden this, which could have been a stellar experience, is now mediocre because it wasn't as good as the five-star one you had on a rooftop in San Francisco. And so I'm actually trying to like deconstruct my preferences because yeah. I feel like I made the strongest preferences during the unhealthiest time in my life. Like I am 36 years old and a new mom and I still, there's a part of the back of my mind that believes it would be fun to drink mimosas all day on a patio on Sunday, even though I know it's going to make me tired, unhealthy happy, bloated. Like every time I've tried to do it since I was about 27 years old, it's been a fairly miserable experience. But in my head, I still hold it up on this weird little pedestal. 
Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? So that's one of the key aspects of habits where I think of it as set and forget. We set the habit and we forget about the details where you know, mimosas is an example, or this could be something as simple as learning to prefer chocolate cake, where think of all the birthday parties we went to and learn to associate chocolate cake with friends and ice cream and parties and all this. I'm guessing you've had some pretty good associations with mimosas back in the day. And our brains, they're like, hey, let's just pretend we're back in the day. You know, we're in real life. We are not back in the day. We're, we're in the present moment. And so here, these preferences pop up and they can actually get in the way of us enjoying our lives now to the point where we will eat two or three pieces of chocolate cake or we'll, we'll go be like, oh, yeah, let, let me try those mimosas all day Sunday. And then we're like, oh, yep, that still's not very good, <laughs> you know, <laughs> over and over and over because we're not really – and I'm not saying this is the case for you, but I see this a lot both in my clinic and in my research – when we're noticing the brain says, oh, I, but I just want to have what that feeling was, when in reality, we could have what our feeling is now, and it might be just as good or better, and it might be something else. It doesn't have to be mimosas all day on Sunday. That makes sense, but I find that disassociating those learned associations are really difficult. Like It's often a thought of mine, which is why I'm still reading your book. <laughs> I read your book this year when I had most of my more intense addictions back in my 20s. For a little background, I was heavily bulimic for about 10 years. I drank like five to seven nights a week for about 10 years. I did party drugs for 10 years. I was addicted to Adderall for 10 years. And so the last probably eight to 10 years though, have been a slow unraveling of that and trying to build better habits. But I find that I still have those tendencies. So for example, yes. chocolate, my husband has to hide the chocolate. It's a big deal around here. I ordered chocolate, <laughs> chocolate from Thrive Market. It comes in bulk. And if you leave me with that chocolate, it will be gone in a day. So he has to hide it and he has to hide it well, because sometimes I find his little hiding spots and I will secretly take it and then confess it. I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, really, really? So this isn't a joke. And I'm like, no, I'm, this is an actual thing that you are helping me with. And so yeah. when we find ourselves in that position, one of the things that I found really fascinating when I was reading your book was about the association you found with basically being obsessed with ourselves, <laughs> that a lot of our addictions come back to an addiction to ourselves or our own ego drive. Talk about that a little bit. Yes, yes. And then we can get into some pragmatics around like what it is that can actually help us say with the chocolate. The addiction to the self, there's one study I think I mentioned in the Craving Mind book was around just showing the study at UCLA where they brought adolescents in and showed them their own Instagram feeds. And the only manipulation they made so they could do a careful scientific study of it was how many likes they arbitrarily assigned to different Instagram pictures, right? So they basically studied the effect of likes, getting a bunch of likes versus getting just a few likes. And what they found was that when adolescents saw their own pictures, which had gotten an arbitrary number of a bunch of likes, they were activating their reward centers in their brain, but they were also activating these self-referential brain networks. And so there seems to be something rewarding basically about ourselves, whether it's talking about ourselves, whether it's getting a bunch of likes on Instagram, 
whether it's a bunch of other things. And that process seems to <laughs> seems to have a lot of overlap with addiction because that excited quality of, ooh, I got a bunch of likes is the same as being on the savanna and finding some food. Ooh, here's some food, which could be the same as <laughs> searching the house and finding some chocolate. Ooh, here's where he hid the chocolate. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the key aspect there is to basically understand that our brains only change habits through one ingredient. And that one ingredient is awareness. And what I mean by that is there's a huge amount of emphasis on willpower. Just stop it, right? <laughs> there's a great Bob Newhart skit from the 1970s where he plays a therapist and patient comes into his office and, and she says, oh, I have this problem. And he says, just stop it. It's a great skit. But it highlights how forever we've been so focused on this idea of willpower. Well, Nobody asked the neuroscientists <laughs> whether that was a legitimate concept. Makes sense, and then we can blame ourselves if if something doesn't work, and we say, I just didn't have enough willpower. Or if we sign up for a diet program, they can say, yeah, it's not our program, it's you. You have to sign up for another year. There are all these things that societally where we're just like, oh, yeah, that's a nice heuristic, but nobody consulted the neuroscientists. And I say that because if you ask the neuroscientists, they'll say, What's willpower? That's not in the equations. If you look at the scientific equations for habit change, they have everything to do with how rewarding a behavior is and then an error term. And that error term is critically dependent on one thing, which is awareness. So for example, if I have a patient that comes in that wants to quit smoking, instead of telling her or him to just stop, I'd say, just smoke. <laughs> and they look at me like I'm crazy. And I say, well, go home and really pay attention to what that cigarette tastes like and what it smells like. Or if I have a patient who comes in that wants to stop overeating, I tell them to go ahead and overeat, but pay attention as they do it. So they can start to see how rewarding it is because this behavior, this behavior change process is critically dependent on how rewarding or unrewarding a behavior is. That's why it's called reward-based learning. If something's rewarding, we're going to do it. We're going to learn it and do it again. If it's habitual, we're just going to keep doing it without paying attention to how rewarding it is. And if we suddenly pay attention and see that it's not very rewarding, that reward value drops. It's called a negative prediction error because we predicted that it would be rewarding and it was below expectations. It was negative in that respect. And that's what helps us become disenchanted with our behaviors. So people learn, oh, cigarettes taste like crap. People learn that overeating doesn't actually feel very good compared to not overeating. And so here, maybe we could use chocolate as a concrete example, and I don't want to put you on the spot here. Oh, put me on the spot. That's what the show all is for. All right. <laughs> so I'm going to put you on the spot here. So if you just with the chocolate, there's this, I call this the pleasure plateau, whereas the first bite's good, the second bite's generally good. At some point, that pleasure starts to plateau. And at some other point, we hit a cliff <laughs> that we kind of fall off of because that's where we feel bloated, we feel guilty, we feel shame. We're going to try to explain how the chocolate mysteriously disappeared when our husband goes to try to find it, all that stuff. So do you know what I'm talking about in terms of that pleasure plateau and that cliff of despair or denial or whatever you want to call it? I know exactly what you're talking about. And I actually was trying to engage in this mindful-based activity 
like this week because I get this chocolate called Hue Chocolate. No, they're not a sponsor, listeners, <laughs> but it is like the best chocolate ever. It's this like plant-based chocolate, so decadent, and it's like $6 for one bar. So I sometimes will buy really expensive chocolate just so I won't overeat it. But mm. then... I've realized I might have created this weird predicament for myself, whereas it reminds me of a lot of the child development stuff I'm learning for raising my new baby. But now that my husband's in charge of the chocolate, I feel like the calories or the activity doesn't count if I've found it. (laughs) So anyways, I found the chocolate, right? And I'm like, oh my God, I could eat this whole bar. And I was like, no, I'm just going to eat two pieces. And there's eight pieces total. So I eat two pieces and it's like, perfect. And then about an hour later, I'm like, I'm going to have two more. So I have two more and it's perfect. And then I realize he's not paying attention, nor will he realize that the chocolate's gone at all because the chocolate only means something to me. And so I'm like, well, it's kind of sneaky. I can eat the rest of the bar. So I realized the only pleasure I was deriving from it was the fact that it was somehow sneaky, even though I'm the one that's forcing him into the behavior of hiding my chocolate (laughs) and it didn't even taste good. I'm like, that was a waste of like three of those dollars because this last part did not even taste very good. It was just the act of rebellion. Oh, that is so perfect. So you can start to differentiate that act of rebellion from how rewarding the true act that that prompted this whole thing, which is I like chocolate, is, and how that can stop on its own. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Sometimes I wake up feeling like I hate everything. Like this dark cloud is over my day, and I look to the past and the future, and everything feels tainted, like this is how it's always been. Those type of days used to last months, and now they're pretty few and far between, and they rarely last more than a few hours, but it can still make me feel like a fraud. I'm sharing this because I know that we all carry around these things that make us feel different or less than, but if we keep them bottled up, the shame spirals and creates more problems than that initial thought. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's difficult finding friends or family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. Therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know. It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of you. BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online, so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. Oh, that is so perfect. So you can start to differentiate that act of rebellion from how rewarding The true act that prompted this whole thing, which is I like chocolate, is and how that can stop on its own simply by paying attention. Like, oh, we can ask ourselves, do I really need another piece or is it because my brain wants to be sneaky, right? That's where this reward value comes in, where we can think back to what it was like to stop at two versus what it was like to eat four and then six and then eight And we can map out that pleasure plateau simply by remembering what it was like before. We don't have to go through that process every time. And just as an example, my lab just published a study where we did this. So we have this Eat Right Now app that helps people pay attention as they overindulge. 
And we found that it only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention as they overeat for that reward value to shift from this is really rewarding to below zero, where they start to shift that behavior. We can model that out mathematically and we can see it in their behavior because they report that they start to shift their behavior. This works both for overeating as well as eating junk food, as well as smoking. So it's it's highlighting exactly what you're saying here. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it's important to remind people of that distinction you made of that it takes 10 to 15 times to really change the behavior. And I like that distinction or emphasizing that because there were so many times you could even also say maybe it was before I was ready to make big lifestyle changes. But I remember reading books, trying to make changes in my life in my early 20s when I still had a lot of changes that needed to be made. And I would bring awareness to something and maybe change the behavior one time. And usually I was focused on trying to overcome my bulimia at this time. And it might work one time and it might work a second time. But then if I didn't feel it making permanent changes (laughs) after five or six times, I would almost get discouraged and think, okay, well, I can't change this or this is too difficult or it's going to be this hard forever. But it was when I started also paying attention to the progress I made rather than being like, okay, I can't heal myself right now or realizing, oh, it's been three weeks since my last binge and purge versus three hours or three minutes like it would have been a few years before that. And so really focusing on the progress I was making was important, but I think there's something to also being kind on yourself because I imagine that beating yourself up only increases that self-sabotage spiral. Yes. So if I could just highlight two things you said, because they're really, really important. One is the shame, blame, guilt, whatever self-judgment cycle can often lead to more of the same behavior. Because I see this a lot in my clinic where somebody eats because of a negative emotion And then they feel guilty for overeating and that becomes a negative emotion that leads them to eat again. And then on top of that, they beat themselves up. So here I think of it as not only seeing how unrewarding the old behavior is. So how does beating ourselves up actually fix anything? It doesn't. It just gets us stuck in those habits. But then we can compare that to what it's like to be kind to ourselves, what it's like to be patient with ourselves, what it's like to be compassionate, bring some compassion toward ourselves. Those all feel so much better and fit into this reward paradigm as well, because our brains are always looking for, I think of it as the BBO, the bigger, better offer. And so if we can compare what it's like to judge ourselves as compared to being kind to ourselves, to our brain, it's a no-brainer. If we compare overeating to not overeating, to stopping when we're full, that's also, it feels better to not to overeat. And that's how we can change the behavior. The second thing I want to highlight is this idea where we can say, oh, I failed because I did this behavior again. What if instead of going, oh, no, and falling into the shame or the guilt or the self-judgment cycle, we turn toward that and say, oh, well, that didn't work well. And we learn from it. And so you were saying, you know, if we emphasize our gains, learning, we can actually look at anything whether it's a gain or even where it feels like we've stumbled. Often we learn more from stumbling than from doing well, (laughs) but it's helpful to reflect on both. If we look at that stumble as a learning opportunity, are we 
ever moving backwards. It's more like forward, maybe a little sideways in a different way than we expected, but in an optimal learning way where we're learning something. But the key there is being open to learning instead of being closed down and harsh. Oh no, we're not in a place where we can actually learn. Whereas if we bring some curiosity in, and this is what mindfulness is all about, is, oh, what can I learn from this? Suddenly everything moves us forward. So I used similar techniques when I remember very clearly the very last time I ever did cocaine. And this was during a time where I was partying a lot, but I was also sort of on the downslope. Like I was trying to make changes, but I was still... I was living in this like state of dissonance where I'm like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore, but I also very much think that's where all the fun is. <laughs> and so I remember my best friend at the time, she knew I wasn't really doing coke as often, but I didn't really have a good reason not to, nothing terrible had happened. So she was doing it one day and I did it with her and I just had this feeling that I'm like, do I want to do this? Whatever, like every now and then won't be a big deal. And the moment that I did it, I was just so focused on how everything in my body felt, like that drip in the back of my throat that I'm like, this is terrible. Why did I ever do this before? My nose is burning. My chest is pounding and tight. And I'm like, I just induced anxiety, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like, why did I do this? At that time, I was really mad at myself. I was like, why did I do that? I ended up just going home and like waiting for it to wear off and being like, never, never again. And I never did again. And so I really give a lot of credit to focusing on what was going on in my body because none of them were really pleasant feelings. But when we're talking about something like anxiety specifically, how do we use those same tools to bring awareness to that habit loop? Are we not as focused on the sensations in our body or is that still good to do? But is that also bringing more awareness to your anxiety feelings, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a really important question. It's not just about like, oh, suddenly if I'm aware of my anxiety, it's going to magically disappear. So there are two aspects here. One is that we can map out our anxiety habit loops. So the feeling of anxiety, that physical feeling can lead to a behavior. And there are lots of behaviors that this can lead to, uh, whether it's we go in, go on social media to distract ourselves, we cue pictures of puppies on Instagram, whatever, we eat. So we've got to notice what the behavior is. And one of the prime behaviors that drives this anxiety habit loop, as we talked about, is that anxiety can drive the mental behavior of worrying. And so we can focus on the worrying and ask ourselves, what am I getting from this? In the same way that you just described beautifully with noticing that you didn't get anything from Coke. And in fact, it was not rewarding. And that helped you stop using it. We can do the same thing with worrying. So we map out these anxiety habit loops. Feeling of anxiety is the trigger. The worry is the mental behavior. And then we can ask ourselves, what do I get from this? Is the worrying keeping my family member safe? Is it solving the problem? Is it getting the project done? Whatever. And we can see, oh, it's not very rewarding. The other thing we can then do is bring awareness itself and curiosity to the physical sensations of anxiety. I think of anxiety as fear of the future, right? Because it's, it's usually this feeling of nervousness or worry about something with an uncertain outcome. <laughs> Enter the future, which doesn't, the future does not, the future is not certain. That's the only certain thing. So if we look, those feelings, Often we think, oh no, this is going to last forever. This is how our brains act in the moment. But in the moment, if instead of going, oh no, 
we turn toward it with some curiosity and some kindness and go, oh, here are these physical sensations. I wonder, what do these actually feel like? And we actually built in a stress test, we call it in the Unwinding Anxiety app, where we have people, when they feel anxious, to feel into their bodies, where they feel anxiety the most, and then ask themselves, is it more on the right side or the left side of their body? Now, it doesn't matter which side they feel it most or if it's right in the middle. But what that does is it helps them awaken to their natural capacity to be curious. Like, oh, I wonder if it's on the right side or the left side. And in that moment, that helps them not only open to what it feels like to be curious, but also to bring curiosity to those sensations and start to ask, ah, well, is this sensation changing? What sensation is strongest right now? And as we focus on the present moment experience, it helps us not feed the anxiety habit loop of that fear of the future. Because in the present moment, we are just curious about what's happening rather than worried about what might happen. Does that make sense? It does. And I have definitely found those tools useful for a lot of the addictions that I've broken. And I've also noticed that I just described my last time doing cocaine. And before that day, though, I could feel myself already hyper analyzing it. So I was kind of unconsciously using some of these tools like, what am I doing this for? Do I like this? Like bringing more attention to the after effects and being like, what is this even worth? What happened yesterday? Did I even have fun yesterday? That type of thing. Well, the same thing happened when I was doing copious amounts of ecstasy, (laughs) like for years, a lot of it looking back, I can only laugh because it was ridiculous. And then there was a time where all of a sudden my body started just reacting differently. Like instead Mm. of it starting my night and being like, okay, I just popped a Molly and now I'm ready to go. It would immediately put me to sleep. It was really strange. And so I've looked at my experience with drugs as almost wondering, is this my body's defense mechanism where all of a sudden it's like, okay, Melissa, you're doing way too much. We're just going to like reverse the effects of this. But that hasn't happened with everything. Like it was very difficult to begin to overcome bulimia. It was very difficult to stop doing Adderall. Have you found a difference between what, some people might even go through a natural process of overcoming their addictions versus the ones that really stick. In The Craving Mind, you even talked about how there were so many people who had such a hard time giving up smoking versus when they quit something like heroin, which you would think it would be the opposite. Why is that? Yeah, so there are a number of things that can come into play and probably our genes, our individual variability in our genes plays a role as well. But if you think of smoking as an example, we can smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, and that means we're going to reinforce that habit loop 20 times a day, whereas you can't pop a molly 20 times a day. It doesn't have that short half-life like nicotine does. So there are certain substances like nicotine, and Adderall, for example, has a relatively short half-life as well, that make them naturally more reinforcing than other substances. Psychedelics, for example, tend to have a much longer half-life. Like LSD, I think has a half-life is like a day and a half or something like that. Or maybe not that long, but it's not two hours. Let's just say it's much longer than that. And also affects very different brain mechanisms than Adderall, I should say. So Adderall focuses its effects on the dopamine system. Nicotine, it's dopamine that's the reinforcing piece. 
which also may be why things like psychedelics are not addictive. So I think there are a lot of things that are that can play a role in why a certain substance or a certain behavior can be harder to break than another. And one of the big ones is how many times we can reinforce it in a single day. That was one of the big takeaways from reading your work is that every addictive behavior, every time we engage in it, every time we smoke a cigarette or we decide to binge eat or we give in to that other piece of chocolate, it's not just putting off the behavior change. It's reinforcing the current behavior. And so you're strengthening your habit every time you choose not to make a change or engage in some sort of mindfulness activity in order to bring awareness to what you're doing. And this was actually a really big key to me when I was overcoming bulimia. And one thing I realized while you were just talking was that all of the ones that were very difficult for me were very much lifestyle based. Whereas the other ones I had already kind of categorized in my head as like a fun factor. And so Adderall, you know, I woke up, I took an Adderall and then in the afternoon I took another Adderall. That was my day. That was my protocol. Bulimia is heavily tied to food, which you have to do when you have to keep food around, you keep your biggest drug around when you're healing from an eating disorder. Smoking, people identify as a smoker. They meet people while smoking at bars. Like all the things are very lifestyle-based. And so when I was trying to finally overcome bulimia, one of the biggest keys for me was I started talking out loud to myself when Mm. I was having a weak moment, I should say, because it's so easy to justify the things that are happening in your head. Like at night, for example, is when I'm really plagued by the chocolate. I'm like, oh, the chocolate's right here. I didn't eat that much today. The extra calories won't matter. It's not that big of a chocolate bar. Like what's really the harm? One more day, you know, type of thing. And so I would do that though when I was having a binge and purge cycle because it was so easy to be in denial about what was going to happen in just a few minutes because I'd be like, well, I'll just have one more cupcake or whatever it is, even though I knew that might be a trigger food. And so I'm like, but one more won't do anything. And so I would say this out loud and I'd be like, you're telling yourself that one more of these cookies or cupcakes isn't going to do anything when you know that this is a trigger for you and you're going to end up eating it. You're going to feel like shit. You're going to sit with it a little bit longer and then you're going to decide I'm going to throw this up anyway. So I might as well eat the whole thing. And then you're going to be in the bathroom purging up all of this food, not only wasting money, but being destructive to your body. And I would say this stuff out loud and it would snap me out of it almost every single time. Yeah. So even I love how you describe that. So saying it out loud helps us become more aware of it and not kind of push that to the side or deny or suppress or any of it. It's like, oh, yeah, this is really what's going to happen. And that helps us bring that reward value of how unrewarding it is right into our direct experience right now. It's like, oh, This is what's going to happen because this is what has happened in the past. We base our future behavior based on what we've done in the past. So for listeners that are out there thinking, okay, I either have an addiction to one of the many things we've mentioned, or it might be an addiction to anxiety or realizing that they're letting their anxiety tendencies go unchecked. When they're feeling that craving, what are your best tips for actually sitting through that craving until it passes? Because that is the part that ends up getting me the most. I'm like, do I lay here? Do I keep myself busy? <laughs> like, yeah. Do I yeah. deep breathe? One of the techniques, and we've studied this in my lab. So for example, 
we did a study with mindfulness training versus cognitive therapy for smoking cessation. We got five times the quit rate of that gold standard cognitive therapy. And part of that, one of the biggest moderators of effects was these informal practices. And one that we taught people, the acronyms RAIN. So we have to recognize. So if we're not aware of the craving, there's no way we can work with it. So that's where the R comes in. The A is for allow. We have to allow or accept or at least acknowledge that it's there so that we're not trying to push it away. We're not trying to run away from it. We're really, the only way out is through. And the only way through is to accept and allow it to be there so that we can turn toward it rather than running away. So really just allowing it to be there. It's like, oh, here's this craving. And then the I is for investigate. This is where we bring in curiosity. And so think of the I as that attitude of curiosity. Like instead of going, oh, no, here's a craving. Going, Oh, here's the craving. And then the N is for note, where we just note, and this can happen out loud. You're just describing a great use of kind of saying things out loud. But we note out loud what our physical sensations are. And I'll give an example. So I had a patient, I was working at the VA hospital a few years ago, and I had a patient who came in to my clinic and he said, doc, if I don't smoke, my head's going to explode. So that's how strong his craving was. We went to the whiteboard. I wasn't sure what to do at the moment. So I just went to the whiteboard and I pulled out a marker and I said, okay, describe what head exploding feels like, AKA what's your craving feel like? And he said, tightness, it's tension. And so I would write these words on the board and ask him, describe, is it getting stronger? And so, yes. So each one, you know, tightness, tension, burning, all of these descriptions of his physical sensation were also associated with an intensity that was growing. And then at some point it peaked and then they started to get weaker. And he had this look in his eye and I said, well, what just happened? He said, oh, that's when I usually smoke is when it gets so strong that I can't handle it. But I just realized if I just name these things, if I just note them out loud, I know, oh, these are physical sensations. They went away, they changed, they got weaker and I didn't smoke. And that's what we can do with any craving. I even have patients say, they're like, oh, it's gonna last forever. And I say, okay, pull out a stopwatch. And when your craving starts, hit start. And I think the longest that anybody's ever timed one was 13 minutes. They don't even last that long. I mean, 13 minutes can seem like an eternity in that moment. But when somebody brings in that noting practice, that rain, recognize, allow, investigate, basically turn toward it, get curious, and then note it, you can note it out loud or just note it to yourself. This is where we can start to notice these are physical sensations. These are thoughts. These are emotions. They come and go. And the more I bring awareness to them, the less I get pulled along or dragged by them. And that's how we can work with a craving. And that makes so much sense because so much of what I experience in the middle of a craving, whether that's an actual craving or an anxiety loop, is that all of a sudden I associate all of these other things with whatever I'm experiencing when really it's just the sensations. So for example, with anxiety, I realize like my body is reacting like I'm going to die over this. But when I turn to it, I've actually used the practice where I'm like, okay, my chest is tight. My heart's beating. I used to do drugs seeking out this feeling. Why am I now avoiding it like I'm going to die? Like, what if I just sat here and pretended I just like took drugs that I used to in my 20s and just like wrote out the natural high and experienced it that way? And that has worked in some moments where I'm like, huh, that actually wasn't that bad of a feeling. It was just not what I am used to feeling or trying to feel right now. So what if I just surrender to the moment? 
well, that's the key, surrendering to the moment. Instead of pushing our present moment experience away, turning toward it. Instead of, oh, no, going, oh, and surrendering to it. I love how you put that. Well, thank you so much for all the research you've brought to this area. Like I said, even though I have made such significant changes to my life, I still recognize that the tendencies are there. So I have to keep it in check, even though my life looks completely different than it used to. So thank you again for what you brought to the table, because it was really helpful for me. And for listeners who have also found it helpful, where is the best place for them to connect with you online? Uh, the easiest, I've got a website with a bunch of free resources, just drjud.com, drjud.com. It also has links to my books and the apps that I talked about. I'm also on Twitter at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R, and Instagram at Dr. Judd, D-R period J-U-D. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 213. So your challenge for this week is to bring a little mindfulness into your life, if you haven't already. But I'm specifically talking about in those moments of craving. I want you to just get curious, to notice what sensations are going on in your body, what thoughts are floating across your mind, and do your best to not identify with any of them, not label them as good or bad, just note what they are. As you do this, I want you to also take note of the craving sensation. Is it strengthening? Is it decreasing? How long does it take to go through a whole cycle? This alone creates a new habit. You're no longer just going through a cycle of behaviors on autopilot and wondering how the hell you got here. You're noticing all of the sensations of this craving or the addiction or the habit that you've created. And that's the new habit is self-awareness. The more you strengthen that habit of self-awareness, not only does it disrupt the tendencies that you would be likely to have engaged in, increased self-awareness is so helpful in more than just an addictive cycle. It can help from everything with your relationships, to your productivity, to your own personality. And like we talked about in the show, this doesn't just have to do with substances or the addictions that you think of as addictions. Your states of mind, your reaction, those types of tendencies are also habits of addiction that we can learn to overcome with just a little more mindfulness in each moment. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you found this episode helpful or you know someone who needs it, tap that little share button in the top right hand corner and send it directly to a friend or you can take a screenshot and tag mindlovemelissa and mindlovepodcast. If you love Mind Love, the absolute best way to support the show is by joining Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium or right in the Apple Podcasts app, although I do prefer my website, but I'm thankful either way. You can also purchase from one of my amazing sponsors. I absolutely love them all and you get something for yourself while convincing them to sponsor me for a little longer. So it's definitely a win-win. And finally, leaving a five-star review in the Apple Podcasts app. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 